Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, we're back in the book of Acts, and we are starting in chapter 20 today. We finished up 19 last week with Dr. Jim. So we'll be looking at Acts chapter 20. It's an interesting chapter, and especially at the beginning of it, I feel like it's one of those, what they call in like the film industry, it's a callback chapter. There's lots of new stuff happening, but there's also lots of references to what has happened before, and so it's important that we're able to recap or jump back. So uh, there's going to be a number of points this morning that we're going to look at that call back to previous times in the book of Acts, which I think is super interesting. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. Right away, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. We've got a couple callbacks here, right away. After the uproar had ceased. Anyone who was here last week will remember a huge portion of chapter 19 is devoted to this big riot. Does anyone remember what caused or incited the riot um, in Ephesus in chapter 19. Well, it was the Paul had, had been preaching, and as a result, the people were really concerned that this might upset their goddess Diana, mm-hmm. also referred to as I have never known as Artemis. As Artemis, yep. And they were afraid that their business and their worship would be affected, and they just rioted. They didn't hurt him. He didn't say anything. Yeah, it's a super interesting fact. We have this man who worked silver and made idols of Artemis, who basically incites people and says, his fellow tradespeople, and says, we're going to lose our jobs. If they're following another god who we can't make statues and idols of, what are we supposed to do with our living? How are we going to make a living uh, for a god that has no idols, that has no physical worship like that? And what's the deal? I mean, we have Artemis, we have this giant temple to our goddess, this is how we make our living, and he's going to take that away from us. So he's using things that people were already afraid of. He's talking about uh, their livelihood, their money, their worship, all these things that can get really people wild, riled up when it's challenged. I think we can struggle with that nowadays, too, the idea that when people challenge our safety net or our finances or our jobs or our worship or our livelihood, all of these things can really incite fear within us. So really, as you said, Tamara, he's, he's playing off the fears that they have. He's playing off the insecurities that they have in their own lifestyle. And we get this riot, and you're right, Paul isn't affected because it says, actually in chapter 19, Paul wanted to go, and they held him back. They said, don't, no, 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 you're not going out there. Like, they want you. They're mad at you. You can't go out there, and they protect him. And so there's this riot, but ultimately it kind of fizzles out at the end of chapter 19. It kind of goes one way. The, the, the person in charge says, you know, you can talk to the governors, you can go through official channels, but if you're not willing to do this, we need to disperse because we're the ones who are going to get charged with rioting. We're the ones who are going to get in trouble here. Nothing, none of this is going to work. And ultimately, uh, it dismisses at the end of chapter 19. So after that uproar, this riot had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them or encouraged them, Um, as he's been doing all throughout the different areas that he goes to. Uh, And taking his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And this is another callback back to earlier in chapter 19. We read that Paul has a very specific plan for where he wants to go next. Uh, If we look back in chapter 19, verse 21, 
Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's in Ephesus. He says, I need to go through Macedonia and Achaia or Greece. Uh, I need to make my way back around. I need to get to Jerusalem. And then eventually, my plan after that is to go to Rome on the other side of the continent, the other side of the, the area. So now he's moving in his direction. He's been in Ephesus. I'm going to go to Greece or Achaia. I'm going to work my way through, and then I'm going to go back through Macedonia and head back to Jerusalem. And so that's what's happening here. That's where we're going. Paul's doing, he has purposed in the spirit, or he has had this spiritual influence of where he wants to go. He's following God's leading, and now it's time to start making that trek in his journey. Chapter 20, verse 2. When he had gone through those districts and had given them, again, much exhortation, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So again, he wanted to go to Macedonia, and he did. Then he wanted to go to Achaia, or Greece in this case, it's regions of Greece. He goes there, and then he's planning to sail back to Syria to go on his way to Jerusalem, as we read about. But something happens. We have this plot from, uh, formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail. He hears word that the people who have been sort of his enemies through a large portion of the book of Acts, as we've been reading week to week, have a plot to, to kill him or harm him in some way. How do we think this might have affected him? Or what, does, what do we see here in this picture? Verse 3, a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. And he decided to return through Macedonia. Well, I mean, ultimately, he still keeps going, right? If this way is not going to work, I'm, I'm not going to give up on my trek to get to Jerusalem. I'll just take the long way around if I have to, right? Many of the Jewish people would have been headed in the direction of Jerusalem. There would have been ships sailing from all these ports to pilgrim their way to Jerusalem. And Paul was probably going to get on one of these ships and go with them, but that would be a really easy place for them to, you know, toss him all overboard and make it look like an accident, just ditch him, the one who's messing with their religion, messing with their belief system, just toss him out at sea and be done with him. So he ultimately does not go on the ship with them. So again, we see God's provision working its way out in his life, protecting him at this point. And he decides to return through Macedonia. Verse 4, and he was accompanied by, um, always mess up these names, so Peter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. These are representatives of the different churches. We talked a little bit last week about the people who would be bringing financial gifts to Jerusalem. These are probably the men bringing the gifts on behalf of the churches with Paul on their way to Jerusalem. Verse 5, but these, these men that we just referred to had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Now something interesting happens in verse 6. Let's see if you catch it. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. 
really interesting verse. Anyone catch what happened in the contrast between verses 1 to 5 and then something changes in verse 6? Yeah. Yeah, the, the pronoun changes. Luke has been writing, describing Paul's journey for actually a number of chapters since I think somewhere in chapter 16. He's heard the information secondhand and has transcribed it, describing Paul's journey. And now Luke, we get the picture that he's picked back up with Paul. He's maybe been in Philippi this whole time waiting, and Paul is now connected back with him. And from verse 6 on, Luke is now an eyewitness again. He's now with Paul. He's traveling with him on the journey. I think it's fascinating to see this, this, this man who's recording these, this book, this, these documents, and how the perspective shifts as we go through of he's with Paul, then he's not, and then he is, and how his writing style kind of accommodates within that. And now he's, again, part of the journey, part of the experience. <clears throat> Verse 6, again, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. What are the days of unleavened bread? What is that referring to? Yeah, Passover. Yep, the, the feast of, of Passover and then the, the time of unleavened bread, or you can use unleavened bread to refer to the whole time. So we're, we're getting this kind of date stamp. We know when it is, which will come up a little bit later. And came to them at Troas, which is where the other people were that were referred to in verse 4 and 5. And we stayed seven days. Verse 7, And on the first day of the week, that is what we'd refer to as Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Yeah. What's the, yeah. Yeah, at least 20 hours. Yeah, so for a while. I mean, he's intending to leave the, like, the next day, so rather than like, oh, let's get a good night's sleep tonight, it's like, I'm leaving tomorrow, so I need to cram in as much content as I can. Hope you guys have your coffee and you're ready to stay up all night because we're going to preach, we're going to read the word, we're going to hear about the gospel and the kingdom that is to come. And uh, he preaches. Another interesting thing, again, happens in this verse. It says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. I think this is one of, if not the first time in the New Testament where we see a picture of the believers gathering together and breaking bread on the first day, the transition out of worshiping on the Sabbath and worshiping on the Lord's Day, celebration on the Sunday, the day that Jesus was resurrected. And it's a very clear, again, we know Luke is very attentive to detail, a very clear detail that he's adding here. They were gathered on the first day to break bread. We're going to see breaking of bread coming up a bunch here, which could be specific reference to um, the Lord's table. It could be a meal that they shared together and then engaged in the Lord's table. It could be a combination of all of the above. And yet we know, again, they're gathering. This is a clear picture of gathering to worship corporately. They're gathering together on the Lord's day. And Paul, again, began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, so he prolonged his message. Like, what a picture that is of like, I'm going to leave, so I need to do as much as I can before I leave. What a picture of Paul's um, determination, his tenacity, his willingness. Like, we think, I don't know about you, my head goes, or we think probably, man, that would be a long time to listen to someone preach, right? 
That would be a long, like, we start to get irate if the sermon goes a bit longer than 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's like, oh, okay, I feel my stomach. Like, where, when is it lunchtime here? But he's going for hours and hours. And we start to think, man, how can you listen that long? But how about we flip it for a second? Talk about Paul. Like, can we imagine the, the toll that that would take on Paul, who is living perpetually on the road. He's probably not getting great sleep. And he says, I'm going to spend what time I have here preaching because, and teaching because that's what's important. This is my priority. I'm on this earth for what little time, I don't know. And I'm going to use this. And I mean, it would have been exhausting. It would have been physically exhausting, emotionally exhausting, spiritually exhausting. Like caring for people and teaching them is a lot of work. And he does it for hours. And that's what his, his, uh, his dedication is here. Hundred percent. He's hurting and he's suffering. That's it too. That's a great point, Tamara. Like, how could, could you? Could any of us actually stand up and teach anything for, uh, let's even say, twelve hours of a day? for an entire day, or even five hours. Like, and and we, got, we, got, we have the whole canon of Scripture now, which Paul didn't have either, right? He might have done some teaching on the Scriptures they had at the time, but ultimately his big message that he was bringing was the message of the Gospel. It was the message of Jesus Christ. And he was inspired, as you say, Tamara, by the Holy Spirit to be able to teach hours on end. Well, it gets more interesting. We're going to continue verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Remember this verse, because I think it's an interesting one. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. We'll leave a little cliffhanger there. But Why do you think Luke, master of detail, would include something like, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. It's a science. I mean, he's a physician. He knows that candles would be taking away the oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, pro- that's a, really, a very likely uh, interpretation of that. Some of it could have just been to say, hey, it's getting dark and they had light, but I think you're right. We're about to witness a man, a young man, sitting in a window cell who not only falls asleep, but basically passes out and falls out the window. Like, if you're able to fall into deep enough sleep that you fall out of a window, there's something going on here. And I think, yeah, I think it's quite simply the oxygen was being taken from the room. The lamps were lit. They're burning up what's in the air. And it was a, a hard environment to, to stay awake in. Uh, we, we, Paul's been preaching for hours. It's getting late. It's night. And this man still, for whatever reason, still wants to be here. <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't get up and leave. He's like, you know what? If I'm falling asleep a little bit, like okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay for this and try and stay awake. And I mean, what a reassurance that even Paul can put people to sleep with his preaching. I mean, I think that's uh, probably because he's going for hours. But So we see this young man. He's in the windowsill. Seems like a dangerous place when you know that your head is starting to nod. Like, don't, if you feel like you're falling asleep, get out of the window. But for some reason, he stays, and he's overcome by sleep and falls from a third floor and was picked up dead. Luke, the physician, includes the detail. It's, it's no guess. It's not that he passed out. It's not he got a concussion. It's not maybe he was, 
you know, just needed some time, Luke, the doctor, says he was dead. He was picked up dead. It's no mystery here in Luke's professional opinion, professional fact stating this man was not alive anymore. Verse 10, But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is back in him. Paul runs down, spreads himself out upon the boy, and he wakes up. He's alive. Do not be, what do you say? Do not be troubled, for his life is back in him. Does this remind anyone of anything? Verse 10 here. We, yeah, we talked about it a bit last week. The, the big miracle workers in the Bible. Yeah, Elijah and Elisha both had this, these kind of stretched out upon the, the person they're raising back to life. It's this picture here of, of embracing, as it says. Paul like falls down upon him. He spreads himself upon him. And we know from even last week, the very garment of Paul's clothing was healing people, almost like when Jesus was walking the earth. The Holy Spirit is just almost oozing out of him at this point, and God is working miracles through him. And here's just another occasion. And we don't necessarily have a picture of why this happened. Why was it important that this man fell and died, and Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him back to life? But but why have we been saying this whole time that miracles happened in the book of Acts? What was the, re- the main primary reason for miracles in the book of Acts? Or even the book of Matthew? Point to Jesus and? Point to Jesus as Messiah and? The Holy Spirit. What does it say about the person who's been teaching and preaching? if they're able to engage in an act of miraculous. Mm-hmm. So it's pointing to someone greater. It's, it's lending authority to what they're saying, right? And we don't have a reason to believe that they weren't believing what Paul had said, but I feel like if we were sitting in a room and we saw someone fall out a window and die, pronounced dead, and the person who's been preaching at us for hours goes down and raises them to life, I think I'd be listening a little bit closer at that point, right? Clearly, there is power in what they are speaking. They have the authority to say what they are saying. What they're saying, I'm going to listen to it if they have miraculous power from the God that they're describing. It's lending authority and confirmation, affirmation to what he's been preaching for hours. I mean, I like to get the picture. We don't see this in Scripture, but I have the picture of maybe those who are on the outside looking in, still questioning, those who are still like, eh, not sure about this whole God that you're describing. And then you see the man who's preaching do the miraculous work of raising someone from the dead. I mean, I think that's, it's quite astounding. Do not be troubled for his life is back in him. <laughs> and then interestingly, Verse 11, we don't hear about the boy again for another verse or two, but here, when he had gone, Paul had gone back up and broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Like people's adrenaline's high at this point. The man just died and been raised back to life. And rather than saying, okay, maybe, ta- maybe it's time to call it because someone's falling asleep and falling out a window. No, it's like, okay, let's get back to where we were. Let's break some bread. Let's get some food in our belly. Let's celebrate the Lord. Let's rejoice and worship him and remember him. And let's get back to preaching. And he preaches until daybreak. I mean, it just keeps going on. And then he leaves. 
as he said he would. He was planning to leave the next day, so rather than sleeping or resting up for his long journey, he preaches through the night, and then he leaves in verse 12. Then they took the boy, uh, sorry, they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. They're encouraged, they're affirmed, they're comforted, they are um, at peace in many ways. What do we think about this story? What is it? Any, any thoughts, any ideas, any, uh, yeah, what does it make you think of? Hmm. And they would be staying at this, a church, several churches were doing this for 36 hours and staying awake. And then we'd have music and have preaching. And prayer. Like, Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it was called the 36 hours. I think that was the thing. I seem to remember that from my days. I know my youngest daughter got saved. Yeah, like having this gathering, this special event occasion. You know, Paul is here for a limited amount of time. Let's let's make a use of the time we have with him. It seems. Yeah. When I visited mom and dad in Uruguay, it kind of reminds me of a church down there that dad used to preach at, and he'd get so tired. <laughs> um, the church would start at seven. 7.30 at night, and he wasn't even find it convicting at all? Maybe that's just me. I don't want to project on other people. Like sometimes I read a story like this. I'm like, am I dedicated enough that I would sit in a windowsill while I'm like? I would like to think I'd move somewhere safer, but that I would sit and listen to someone's like, who's who would have to come through here for me to like listen to them preach for that long? And I would hope that I would not be idolizing anyone that much to say it has to be a specific person, but. Like, where is my dedication? I, I read this, and that's the question I ask. How dedicated am I to the preaching and teaching of God's word? Is it something I want to actually hear and listen and take in? Am I that dedicated? And, of course, our situation is very different now. We have access at home to world-class preaching. We have an incredible pastor here who feeds us the word of God weekly and multiple times through the week. And they maybe didn't have that as much. And yet, still, it's this piece where I ask myself, where am I at with wanting to hear the word of God? Wanting to hear the message of God? Where's my dedication? I don't know. It's something that definitely stirs in my heart every time I read this passage of where am I at? Yeah. Yeah, And it's not to say, again, that the best way to be growing in your faith is to make sure that every hour of every day you're taking in 
the Bible and biblical content, but yeah, I think it should cause us to, to definitely pause and reflect. Or to, should, if not should, it, it is an opportunity for us to reflect on our own situation. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just some things, you know, like you said, I have the book of Romans. Where some of the Romans is probably in the content of what he was teaching that we were trying to understand. And, um, so I, think, I don't want to discount the novelty of what they were hearing. Sure. And just the, they're hearing with a freedom in Christ for the first time. I'm trying to get their heads around it. I just think that's amazing. I would want to keep hearing kind of mm-hmm. what that means for my life. Because I know Paul's going to leave. He said, I'm leaving in the morning. Yeah. I, I want to know, before you leave, I want to know exactly everything that this means for my life. And we see that. I mean, I think of people like, like a Paul Prosser who came to our church and came to faith late in life, and he was just hungry for the word. Like, he came to know the Lord and just wanted to, all the time, like, give me more content. I want to know. And you're right, there's that novelty aspect for for sure, especially here. I mean, they're in Troas. We don't know who started this church. We haven't heard report of Paul starting it for sure. So maybe they haven't had that good teaching. They are hearing about it for the first time. They're gathering. We don't see the same picture in Ephesus where Paul's been a couple times of them necessarily spending the whole night together. And again, we don't want to argue from silence here, but I think it is, yeah, absolutely. There's 100% novelty and nuance to it that this is new. This is exciting, and we want to get as much as we can while you're still here. Let's continue. Verse 13. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assos, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending to go himself by land. So again, now Luke is still saying we, talking about the group of men. Paul's not with him at this point. I think it's so funny to follow that, that picture. of Where's Luke in all this? He says they went to the ship, and they sailed around, and we're going to meet Paul in another town called Assos, because Paul was going to come by land. If you have your booklet with you, you can look at the map of Paul's third missionary journey, but I'll just explain that it's a kind of a peninsula. So Troas was kind of, I should have put it up on the screen. That would have been a really smart idea if I was thinking ahead. Troas is kind of here and Assos is over here. It would have been a relatively short distance to walk between the two, but to sail, you had to go all around this big peninsula and the two cities were actually close to each other in the land area, but it was a far way to sail. So Paul basically says, hey, you guys take the ship. You guys sail it around. I'm going to stay here and do ministry. I'm going to stay up all night and preach as long as I can. And then I'll, I'll walk to you in the morning. So he doesn't even get to go and have a nap on the ship. He's still traveling and has to travel to meet the ship when he leaves. And so he meets them by land. Verse 14, And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And we have a couple verses here where it's some quick succession We sailed from here to here. We sailed from here to here. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the next day following, we came to Miletus. It's just tracking his journey. They would 
go as far as they could during the day and then they would take into the safe harbors and they would go back out and sail and come back in. They're working their way along the coast. Uh, as they make their way down, there's nothing significant enough happening that Luke feels the need to inform us of it until this picture of going into Miletus. Verse 16, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I mean, this chapter starts with us leaving Ephesus, a very important city to Paul, as we know. Very important city in the New Testament in general. It comes up in many of the books we have. And he decides he doesn't want to stop there. Why? Why does he not want to stop in Ephesus? Yeah. How many days are between Passover and Pentecost? 50. 50. He knows it's quick. There's not a lot. I mean, that might seem like a lot of time for us when we have cars and airplanes. But when you're traveling by boat or perhaps walking part of it, I mean, that's a, he has a goal in mind. He wants to be there to celebrate. He wants to worship in Jerusalem. He wants to be there in time for this celebration. What do you think about that with regards to Paul and his you know, we know that he's explained to people through um, the Jerusalem Council and other, and other meetings they've had that they are not held to the same Judaic laws that they've been held to before. And that he wants to go to Jerusalem for Pentecost. What do we make of that? Have you ever been to Jerusalem at Pentecost? Uh, I'm not sure. Have I? Sorry. No, yeah. Has he? Yeah. Uh, not that. I don't know if we're told that. I don't think so, but... That's true. Yep. That's true. Yep. So probably. He was a pretty faithful Pharisaic Jew. He probably made that sojourn many times. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you know, we've Paul's made the emphasis on the fact you are not held to this code sort of thing anymore, and yet because of who he is and how he's come to the Lord, he still sees value in it. Not as something that's required, not as something that he is legalistically going to bind to any believer in Christ, but something that he still finds value in. It's that piece that we've been talking about throughout the books of Acts of, um, at different times, I think, of you know, the freedom. to work. He, has, he is not mandated to be there for Pentecost, but he has the freedom to go and worship at Pentecost. Because of who he is, there's not that requirement, but that he wants to still. That is how he chooses to engage in his worship. I feel like there should be like a credibility piece to it as well. Like there's going to be so many people in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Like he continually goes to a Jewish audience first. And mm-hmm. he's like well known as a Pharisee as well. And even in some of his letters he talks about like not being a stumbling block or like he was a Jew to the Jew to the Jews. Mm-hmm. But he's still able to, um, yeah, live according to the law in order to have that credibility. Sure, I think there's boldness there, right? He just literally a few verses ahead uncovered a plot to murder him on the sailboat ride over to Syria with the Jewish people, and yet he wants to go there anyways. Almost like you're saying, Rebecca, like it almost we almost get the picture of him like wanting to make a point of like. 
what I'm doing is not necessarily opposed to what you're doing. If you would just open your eyes, you would see I'm still worshiping the same God. I'm still doing what I feel is right here. He's still wanting to, like you say, Rebecca, keep that credibility or if not credibility, at least have a bridge of saying, yeah, you're right. All these people are going to be here. Maybe some of the people that were planning on killing me are going to be there at the same time. They were sailing in the same direction. Like, maybe I can witness to them. Maybe I can share the gospel with them as one of them, right? And share the good news. It is the good news for all people, and he wants to share it with them. Um, And I think ultimately, too, I mean, he passes by Ephesus. It says he doesn't want to stop there. I think he knows that if he stops in Ephesus, where he's, there's this church that he's started, there's this growing community of people that he loves, I think he knows he won't make it in time. He knows that if he stops, that he's going to want to spend time with these believers whom he loves, the people who are just wrestling with a riot, the people... I mean, if he can stop in one town and preach all night long in a place he doesn't even know anybody, how much more is he going to want to preach with the people he does know, the people he does love and care for, who he's known, who have been doing mission with him uh, up to this point? And yet we see his heart is still in Ephesus, even though he doesn't stop there. Verse 17, from Miletus, which is just south on the coast from Ephesus, again, a little bit closer on land than by sea because of a little peninsula there. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, um, let's pause there before we get to his, his mini sermon because I think it's, it's fascinating. But So he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because he knows he'll, he won't make it in time. And he still stops in Miletus, takes the time to send word to Ephesus, which probably would have taken at least a day, and then probably at least another day to wait for the elders to make their way down. He's still pausing and taking time, but he knows if he was in the actual city, it would take even longer. So he specifically calls the elders of the church, those who he knows, if I encourage these people, they will then take this back to their church, and they will spread the word that I have taught them. Right? We talk about, uh, in the book of Ephesians, the idea of, um, oh, what's the phrase I'm looking for now? Uh, edifying the saints for the work of ministry. Right? The idea that, that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I want the elders to come to me. If I had the time, I would preach to everybody. I would teach everyone. But right now, I'm going to focus on these people who are leading this church. I'm going to preach and teach to them and send them back to do the work of ministry in their own church. And then as they spread that out, those people will then do the same thing. And that's, what we, that's the picture we have of the church. When we gather here on Sunday morning, we want to be edified and filled and know how we can go back out into our respective workplaces and mission fields and families and social spheres, how we can take what we have learned and go out and do the work of ministry. And so he brings the elders to him. And he gives them basically a mini sermon here. And I'll try we still got time so we can get through it, hopefully, today. <clears throat> Verse 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jew and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Whew, there's a lot there. Anyone have, like, let's just maybe spitball a little bit. What are some of the things that we notice? What are some of the things that stand out in this elder-encouraging sermonette that Paul gives? Anything come to mind as we read this? Yeah, God's always with you. He says, I don't, like, my life, I don't even care about it. I just want to do the work of ministry. And as you said earlier, Tamara, He's gone through a lot already at this point, and there is more to come. He knows, according to the Spirit, more suffering is to come, and yet the work of ministry continues. God's with him. What else? What do we see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's super fascinating. It's almost like that picture of the time when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? He's saying, you know how hard I worked here. You know I was here for three years. I toiled. I worked hard. I preached in gatherings. Heck, I went door to door. I went to each individual house if I thought it would make a difference. I preached to Jews. I preached to Greeks. I preached to everybody because I want everyone to know this message. No one can say I didn't do everything possible when I was here with you. Well, I'm not going to be here anymore. It's your turn now. Do the work of ministry. I have done what God has called me to do faithfully, and I want you to do the same now. Have responsibility over what God has given you. Lead Take charge, preach the word in season and out of season, as he's going to say to Timothy years later. 
right? He wants them to take that torch and to continue doing what he has started through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I like that you mentioned that, that part, um, Mike, about the blood on his hands. Where is that here? 26, yeah. Therefore I testify you to, this, to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. What, was, what does that mean? What is he referring to? Could be Stephen. The, so the martyrs, perhaps. I think he's talking more future. I think he's saying more, no one can say that they didn't hear the gospel when I was here. Right? No one has not heard this word at this point. If someone does not come to faith in Jesus, it's not my fault anymore. I've done everything I can. And you continue to do that here. You elders of this church continue to work with that fervor, but I've done my job. If anyone does not come to faith, it's not on me because I did everything. He says multiple times through here, you know that I preach with tears, right? He had emotion. He cares for the people that he's preaching to. He wants them to come to faith to the point that it breaks him when people don't. He said, I gave everything. I gave my blood, my sweat, my tears. For three years I was here working diligently and I've come back and forth and now you're going to be here to take up that torch. If anyone doesn't come to faith, it's not on me. Can we all testify to the fact that I've done everything I can? Right? He's, it's a proclamation of, of faithfulness. And I think in our language that can seem maybe a bit braggy at times. Like, oh, you guys know that I'm the best here. Right? I've done everything. That's not the picture we have here. He is, you, we know multiple times. He's pointing to Christ. He's pointing to the, the strength of the Spirit within him. He's saying, no one, can, no one can accuse me of not giving my everything for the Lord and for his gospel. No one can say that. And you're right, Mike. It goes back to this piece of, as I have demonstrated this, so you too should follow in this way. Sure. Um, problems are going to arise. Issues are going to come. So they need to steal themselves um, virtually and be aware that it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be a continual battle. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be easy. And we know, now that we have the full canon of the scripture, we know, especially in the letters to Timothy, false teachers are referred to a lot. We've read the letter to Ephesus in Revelation, where we know there's issues going on there. And Paul, you're right, he prepares them for this. Stay on your guard. Be aware of what's coming. It's not just threats from outside, but threats from inside. And you're right, it's, he, he gave them fair warning of that. It says here multiple times, I didn't shrink away from declaring the whole purpose of God. He didn't shy away from tough issues. He told them the full counsel of what was available at that time. He's given them everything. He's given them warning. He's given them preparation. He's given them truth. He's given them grace. He's given everything that's required for them, and yet he still warns them. Yeah, you're right. I can be here for three years, and I, Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, right? I, like the, the, the person who was chosen as the um, messenger to the Gentiles, right? 
I can do everything right. I can give all my blood, sweat, and tears, and yet there is still trouble coming because we have an enemy working against us. And it's going to come not just from outside, but it's going to come from within. So be ready. Be alert. Be diligent, elders of this church. Lead the way you're supposed to lead. Don't let your guard down. Don't take things for granted, but continue the work. Hmm. And he says, it's right there. I've committed you in prayer. I ask God for uh, his grace on you to build you up, to get you through all this. So hmm. that was like, that added, that added. Now comes the blessing. Here's the warning. Now here's the blessing. Sure. And really like encouragement them to like, be bold, just as he's been bold. Hmm. Yeah, don't, don't shy away from the tough issues. And why? As you say, he's committed them to God in prayer. And ultimately, as much as he cares for them as little children, as we'll see in other places, right? Like, as his spiritual family, they're God's. They're not his. The responsibility isn't on his hands. It's on God's hands what will happen. And again, yeah, you're right. The inheritance among those who are sanctified, this picture of future rewards for those who have grown in their faith, those who endure the trials, those who... Um, are aware and, and fight against the false teachers. Um, yeah, there's encouragement there. That just reminds me so much of where in um, the book of John, in, um, in chapter 17, where Jesus prays for his disciples. Hmm, yeah. It's very, very similar. It's very pastoral, right? Like, this almost reads like a mini one of Paul's letters. It has a similar format, right? He's talked about what he has done what they have done, and then what they ought to do moving forward. Because why? Why did Jesus pray like that for his disciples? Because he was saying, I want you to be one as I am God. Yeah, so he cares for them. He wants them to be unified. He wants them to grow. He wants them to be sanctified so they can have this inheritance of rewards. He wants the progress to continue. He doesn't want it to stop when he's not there. I mean, he tells them... um, Sorry, I just hit the mic too. That's going to be annoying for people online when they listen later. But um, where is it here? He talks about the idea that he's not going to be back. He's not going to see them again. Sorry, I just need to grab some water real quick. No, verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Don't rely on me. You're like, you're on, well, I wanna, don't want to say you're on your own, but don't rely on me anymore. Like, turn to God yourself, and you elders should allow people to turn to you as you imitate me and I imitated Christ. Yeah, he, has, he knows, as he said here, he's been told by the Spirit that he is going to suffer. He knows he's heading for Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going to happen there. All he knows is a lot of Jewish people hate him right now and want to kill him because he's taken them away uh, from their original message. And he plans to go to Rome. I mean, not necessarily a dangerous place at this time, but we know from history that it's going to become a not super safe place for Christians in the near future. He has this picture of what is going to be coming. I'm not, he plans to not be back 
in Ephesus. He plans that, okay, my work here is done, and I'm not going to see you again. You need to continue. And I mean, especially in that time period, again, without modern transportation, it's, it's an effort to get anywhere. And he's like, I'm, I'm probably not going to be back here. And I, I've done everything I can for you. Now take the reins and keep going. Trust in God as I have trusted in God. Be filled with his spirit and continue the work. I don't think at this point yet. Uh, this is early enough that um, I forget when Nero actually came in, but I know for the first while, even when he was in charge, he wasn't super anti-Christian. Um, it was partway through his reign. Eventually, he burns down Rome and blames the Christians for it. He goes a little, a little wild. Um, and that is something that is to come for sure. At this point, the Christians are, the mo- I'd say the biggest persecution against the Christians at this point would be from the Jewish people. Um, who are concerned about, rightly so, about this new, new emerging religion that is telling them they're wrong, telling them they killed the Messiah they've been waiting for. I mean, that's a bold, a bold claim. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he wraps up, he says, you know, it's, I gave everything, I never asked for anything in return. Again, that can come across braggy to us. That's not what he's doing. He's just saying, I, let me emphasize again, I trusted in the Lord for my provisions. He talks about that a lot in Philippians, especially as well. I trusted in the Lord. I never asked for anything because I do or did what I felt I needed to do. This is my calling. Um, as the Lord himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all, verse 37, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to his ship. I mean, what a picture of like the, the brotherhood here between these, these people. The, the emotion of like, you know, how it can feel when the person who is taught us so much, who has led us to the Lord, says, I'm not going to see you again. I'm moving on. I mean, most of us can know the feeling of at some point in our life, a pastor who we've loved and trusted, who maybe was really impactful in our life, moving on to another church. And maybe it's not, hey, I'll never see you again, but I'm not going to have that active ministry with you anymore. And especially here, it's the elders. They look to him for guidance, for everything. They're now in charge. They have to lead this church and they, they embrace him, they pray with him, they weep with him because he's their friend, he's their, their mentor, their pastor, the one who's helped them get to this point. And it's, it's sad for them that they're not going to see him. They're probably concerned and worried for their friend of these bad omens he's preaching of I'm gonna, or t- telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. Like, it would suck to hear a friend and trusted mentor, a parent figure many, for many of them perhaps, saying this. Um, I don't know, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture and it's sad and yet, yeah, it reminds me of those, the ending to a movie where something sad happens and yet it's still the beautiful ending that the movie needs to finish. It's still a a beautiful picture. We know there's chapters more still of what Paul is still going to accomplish. Some of our most favored letters from Paul haven't even been written yet. Like some of the best is yet to come 
And yet here in the midst, we have this picture of, of grief and loss over, yo, I know you're going to do what God has called you to do, but that's still sad for me. That's still sad for us here that we're not going to see you again or, or have you here with us anymore. Just think it's a, a beautiful picture of, of really, you know, I think sometimes we can get in this mindset where we put too much pressure or too much emphasis or borderline idolatry on our leaders or our mentors or our pastors. And that's not the picture we have here. They're not grieving because, oh, we're screwed. We can't do anything now because you're leaving. But just they care about him. They just want the best for him. And there's a lot on their shoulders as well. Um, And yeah, we know from the future there's going to be a lot coming their way and he warns them of it. It's a tough road for for Ephesus and many of the churches. Um, Yet how much tougher would it have been if they didn't have Paul in the first place, I wonder. Any closing thoughts before we we wrap up today, just as we wrap up? No, we went through a a lot, the whole chapter there, but an interesting one for sure. Hmm. Because Jesus knew that he, he had that triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, and then things happened in Jerusalem. And sure. Paul has this vision of, or the Holy Spirit has told him, things are to come in Jerusalem for you. And so there's that parallel as well as, like you said, John 17 and, and there's mm-hmm. parallels. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples, you know, I'm going to go and suffer? And they're like, no, no, you're not. Like, stop saying that, Jesus. That's ridiculous. And they have this, like, intimate gathering in the, the, in the Last Supper together. And, and it's a very similar picture, for sure. And it demonstrates not that Paul is Christ, but it demonstrates his Christ-likeness. And that he's calling them to the same standard. Do as I have done, as he says uh, in, I think it's the Corinthian letters, right? And what a beautiful picture of his dedication, And now we're kind of moving in. This is kind of our transition into the the latter portion of the book of Acts. It's going to be Paul's, it's kind of like moving towards now the climax and the conclusion of the book. And it's going to be a lot more interesting stuff to come. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we see, uh, we see that in Paul's other letters. We see that in James. Yeah, it's not about avoid the suffering, but be prepared for it and turn to God's strength in it. So. Well, let's wrap up because service is going to start in the next couple of minutes. Let me pray for us and we will go and worship together. Father, uh, God, we thank you again for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... Um, these beautiful stories and pictures that Luke diligently recorded for us, even when he wasn't part of the journey himself. Um, Father, we thank you for Paul's diligence, and we thank you for the ways that he preached, and ultimately the fact that in many ways we might say that it's because of Paul's mission to the Gentiles that we now can be here uh, worshiping you and, and praising you and learning from your word. So we thank you for the dedication he had to his task. Father, be with us this morning as we worship together corporately in prayer and in 
communion and in singing and in the understanding and teaching of your word, God. We pray that you would enlighten us, open our eyes and ears to the message you have for us, God, uh, and be with us, we pray. Amen.